our family was able to pull away for just a few days, and we went up to Telluride, Colorado. Now, we love uh, Telluride, Colorado for a lot of reasons, but there is one drawback. The altitude's just horrible. And, and the place where we were staying, the altitude is just a little bit over 9,500 feet. And there's no oxygen up there. And, and it takes me a while to adjust. I generally get adjusted about the time we leave to come home. That's the standard rule. Part of what it means is Becky has to carry in all the luggage because I'm winded. Um, part of what it means uh, is I don't sleep well. And so I wake up at two or three in the morning and, and I don't have anything to do. I can't go back to sleep. So this year, I would go down into the, the, one of the rooms and, and um, I started working on emails. And, and I want to tell you something. You go ahead and throw out the Houston Chronicle right now. He did it. The impossible happened. I cleared my emails. My inbox was at zero. Because nobody's answering at two in the morning, three in the morning, four in the morning. And I get about 350 substantive emails a day that I have to at least look at, even if I don't have to answer all of them. And, and, and what you, I find myself doing is answering the ones I have to answer, um, putting the other ones, leaving them there until I get to them. And that's very frustrating because those others that stay there till you get to them start adding up. But I'm telling you, I just felt like a new man for about 10 minutes. And then at four something in the morning, which is six something in the morning, New York time, they just started coming in again. And I may never see zero again, but the impossible happened. And I took a picture of it. I took a screenshot so that I would remember it as a trophy of my internet days for the rest of all generations. And so I'm just, yeah, I'm really juiced. Now, I don't know how many of y'all remember this. They call this snail mail in this day of email. I used to get a lot of this stuff. I don't get that much anymore. It's very, very rare. But I vaguely remember it. When I got out of law school, I wrote lots of letters. I read lots of letters. Now it's mostly email. We even file things with court electronically and get notices from the court electronically. It's an amazing age we live. And I think our children's children, the generation 20, yet to be born maybe in another 20 years or something, We'll have a hard time of remembering what it was like in our day growing up, my day at least, when you wrote letters, when you didn't have email. Heavens, I've got daughters who think that we would starve if, if the microwave went out. They don't realize that there are, uh, and I'm joking, Becky's marvelous at cooking, but if it were relying upon me, they wouldn't realize that there's another way to do it. Now, here's my issue. 
we've got to get into the mindset of 2,000 years ago. Don't even think snail mail. Don't even think about our postal system. When Paul was writing his letters, there wasn't a Roman postal system for the public. There was a Roman postal, loosely used the word system, that was used basically for military communications. But you wrote a letter, you had to find someone to deliver it. So it wasn't a world of a lot of letters, though they definitely were written, but it was a world where you only, let's just say it this way, there wasn't a lot of junk mail going out, clogging up the inbox. Okay? So with that as our introduction, I want to get to our lesson today. I want us to make sure we're in the flow of where we've been. Paul, we just finished his first missionary journey. Paul left from Antioch with Barnabas. The two of them went to the island of Cyprus. They started at the city of Salamis and they went to Paphos. And from there they sailed back to modern Turkey, landing at Perga. They had John Mark with them, a young fellow, a cousin of Barnabas's. But John Mark, I think Paul might use the term, wimped out in Perga and decided to head back to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas went inland up into the mountain range and went to Antioch. From Antioch, they went over to Iconium. Each step along the way, they're going to the Jewish synagogues and they're telling the people about Jesus. And Paul is using his rabbi credentials as a student of Gamaliel from Jerusalem to explain the prophets and the law to the Jews and to the Greeks that would attend the Jewish synagogue. And all of this we've been building block by block, but I just want us reminded of these bricks as we've been building them. This is an era in Greek thought when most of the intellectual Greeks had realized that whole stuff about Zeus and, and, all, and Athena and all of that doesn't really make intellectual sense. There's got to be one unifying force. And so the Greeks were intrigued with this religion of the Jews which had been around for 1,500 to 2,000 years. Abraham, 2,000 B.C. Believing in one God. And so a lot of non-Jewish Greeks would go to synagogue to hear about it. They were called God-fearers in the New Testament. So Paul has been preaching to all of these groups. And in each set, though Paul would move on, Paul and Barnabas would move on, there would be a coalescing or a coming together of, of people who believed that Jesus Christ was the answer to what the Old Testament had taught, was resurrected God. So from Antioch, they went to Iconium. From Iconium, they went to Lystra. From Lystra, they went to Derby. Now, all along the way, they've been taking back roads. This red hash mark I've highlighted one of the major Roman roads. 
go to Turkey today, there are many places where you'll still see this road because those Romans, they took massive stone blocks that were this thick or deep and came to a point and they would drive them down. They built their roads to last for thousands of years. They weren't thinking, hey, let's build it. We'll repave it next week or next year or next decade. It's there, baby. You go to the ruins at Ephesus, you can see chariot ruts going down the road that have been worn out. So there's a major road. Paul has been sick as a dog. He's been persecuted and kicked out of some of the towns with them trying to stone, or no, actually stoning him in one of them. Thinking he's dead, letting the disciples pull him off, and fortunately he was not. When anybody I know, certainly me, would have said, hey, we've done our part, the churches have been started, let's go home via the road. Not Paul. Paul and Barnabas decide they're going to go back the way they came, saving only that island of Cyprus. They sailed the last leg. And the reason they went back is because Paul wanted to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Luke adds that Paul wanted to encourage them to, quote, continue in the faith. More important than Paul's safety, more important than Paul's comfort, was a desire that these fledgling congregations be fed, be nurtured, be strengthened, be encouraged, that growth would come from them. And that was his single-minded focus that allowed him to put his own life at risk again. And certainly his comfort. So Paul goes back and he gets back to Antioch. And Antioch is a, a, you can still see the ruins today. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So Antioch is blessed with a whole lot of people in the church. And while Paul is there in Antioch, He writes a letter back to the churches where he had his concerns. It's a church letter we call Galatians. And Galatians begins with this, well, it's actually the third verse, where Paul says to the churches of Galatia. Those are the very churches where Paul has been evangelizing. And if we look at Galatians, let's go to the Elmo for a moment. Paul explains to them, this is the way his letter starts. Paul, an apostle, not from men, not through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me, Barnabas, anyone else he may have had with him then, but also he's speaking in a sense for the church at Antioch where he is. To the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, why is Paul writing without even reading the letter to the Galatians? Can we immediately start to think and get into the mind of Paul? Is he there to strengthen is he, is he writing to encourage? 
them to continue in the faith, to do the very things that he had gone back through Galatian churches to do for them? Most certainly. And as we read the letter, we can understand a little of what's going on. Actually, we can understand a pretty good bit. But it's kind of like only listening to half of a phone conversation. You can listen. If Mike's talking to his wife, Debbie, she's at the state house. She's fighting legislation. I can listen to Mike and get an idea of both sides of the conversation. But I am only listening to one. And that's the way it is when we read these letters. Scholars will talk about the occasional aspect of of these letters. And by that they mean these letters were written for an occasion, for a, a reason. There's some reason Paul wrote his letter. And the reason is very closely tied to this Acts narrative. And so we have passages like this where Paul says, Galatians 1, 6 through 8, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Now, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So something's going on there. After Paul has left, and Paul probably got hints of it and was dealing with it when he went back through the churches. But he thought, maybe I didn't spend enough time there. I'm going to write them. I'm going to go to the trouble of writing a letter and seeing that it gets to those churches. A hard thing to do 2,000 years ago. Because I don't want them to follow anyone who distorts the gospel of Christ. Now, the distortion of the gospel back then is a little different than we may see it today. But it's really the same thing, just in different clothes. The gospel is simple. The gospel is the, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes or has faith or trusts in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. That's a very simple message. But we are people who don't like simple things. We like things to be more complicated. Not only do we like, not like simple things, we don't like to be told that this is something that's being given to us. We're not good, by and large, at receiving gifts. We like to earn them. What's that? Uh, is anybody old enough to remember the Merrill Lynch ad on TV? We earn it. That's the way we like to be. We like to earn things. See, people in Boston who watch this on the internet, they will understand exactly what I mean. And they won't realize I'm mispronouncing that word. That's the way they say it. They earn it. But down here, we earn it. You are in. Um, We we don't like, so, so the gospel 
Can it really be that simple? Yes. But wait. If that's all there is, then I'm, I'm not better than the skid row bum who decides to accept the Lord. That's right. Well, I don't like the sound of that. I'd like to think I'm a little bit better. I'm not. So we got all these psychological things going on to make us want to play with the gospel. They did too. Theirs was even more serious. You see, you've got two distinct groups coming to Jesus. The Jews and the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. The Jews have spent 2,000 years understanding that they're the chosen people. They're separated from the rest of the world. They are uniquely God's chosen ones. And now they're being told they're thrown in with all these other guys who don't have a 2,000-year lineage, who can't go back to Abraham, who didn't bother to get circumcised, and they got to get thrown in with them, and there's no difference between them. It's neither Jew nor Greek. That's a real problem for some people. And so the Jews were saying, hey, Greeks, welcome to the Lord. We're so glad you're in this church. However, the church is a Jewish function. That's why Paul came to the synagogues. And so uh, it's the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. Ergo, therefore, if you want to be a Christian, you need to be a Jew. Convert to Judaism and then you can be a Christian. And Paul's having nothing to do with this. I mean, Paul's pretty adamant about it. If you go look at Galatians 3.3 3, and you look at Galatians 4.9, look at what they say. Paul says, oh, start with Galatians 3.1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's cast this spell on you? It was before your eyes, it was physically in front of you that I portrayed Jesus Christ crucified. I told you publicly, we went through this. Everybody, I explained, Jesus was crucified all there. Now, what's happened? Who's cast a spell? Who's bewitched you? I got one question for you. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law. Did you get saved by works of the law? Did you earn your salvation by doing things? Or was it by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you received by hearing with faith? Having begun by faith... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's saying, you know, you started out. You got the Spirit. You got saved by the simple gospel. He who believes in Jesus shall not perish but have everlasting life. You got saved. And now you think you're going to keep it? By how hard you work? It doesn't, it, it doesn't work that way. So Paul is just emphatic on this. If you look at the Galatians 4.9 passage, Paul says, oops, let me scoot it over a little bit. 
And he's speaking here to the Greeks as well. You can see it. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Having started out in faith... Why on earth would you want to return to just a Jewish set of rules instead of your Greek set? That's just not it. So Paul is teaching this. Paul is explaining it. Paul tells the Jews in in verse 21, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? And he shows how the law itself says the law is not meant to save. It's meant to point to Jesus. So Paul writes this, Galatians 5, we see much the same message. Look at it in Galatians 5. It just takes a moment. And we'll study Galatians in more depth when we get a chance after Acts probably. But for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. I mean, what, what, what's the point? If you think being Jewish is good enough, then why did Jesus come to save the Jews? They already were Jews. Circumcision wasn't good enough for them. That's his point. You with me? All right, so with that type of an analysis, are you surprised to find out that Paul is there and Paul in a city that's huge, with a church that's huge, with a lot of teachers, Paul decides sending the letter may not be enough. And we read about it in Acts 15, starting with verse 35. Let's see. So, Paul and Barnabas, this is after that first mission trip. Oh, oh, let me intervene for a moment. So, Paul writes Galatians. There's more acts that we've covered before, but we need to add it here. So, this issue is an issue that's not only in Galatian churches, but it's growing everywhere that the Gentile church is growing. So, the church in Jerusalem holds a conference to figure out how to speak with a united voice and to figure out what to do. So, Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem. They go down there and and they explain everything that's going on in the Galatian churches and all that's happening. And, And there's a debate, and there's prayer, and there's scripture. And there's a discussion and finally a consensus opinion under the control of the Holy Spirit, as they wrote, that a letter would be written. And this fellow named Silas participates in writing this letter. And so a letter is going to be written and that letter is going to go forth to the churches to tell the churches they don't have to become Jews. To be Christians. So with that, Paul and Barnabas head back to Antioch. After some days, oh wait, Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they're in Antioch where there are lots of folks that can preach and teach. Which I have no doubt caused Paul to say after some days to Barnabas, Hey, 
Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. And let's see how they are. Great idea. What happens? Barnabas says, great idea. And let's go ahead and take my cousin, John Mark. We know from other scriptures they were cousins. Paul thought best not to take John Mark with them. One who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul says, that's Greek. (laughs) And there arose a sharp disagreement. A sharp disagreement. Now, the Greek here is very politely written because this is a Bible. What it means is, is they had a knockdown drag out. That may have been a mature one. It may have been one in Christian love. But they were angry and, 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 and very frustrated and upset with each other. I can't underscore how sharp this language is in the Greek. We pull punches in our translation. Luke did not pull punches. Luke basically says, look, they were furious. They just got really, really upset with each other. Genuinely. So they separated from each other. Barnabas takes Mark with him and he goes to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas, who had been in Jerusalem, who'd helped write the letter. We learn from other passages, Silas is also a Roman citizen. Paul takes Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So, oops, you can't see it. Thank you, Richard. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, Luke adds that phrase, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, to let us know the church wasn't upset with Paul. Paul wasn't out of line. Paul goes with the blessings of the church, and actually it looks like as good Christian brothers, they found a good way to handle their sharp disagreement. If we go back to the PowerPoint and look at the map, remember... Mark, John Mark, and Barnabas had gone with Paul to the island of Cyprus, which is where they were from. So it only made sense for Barnabas and John Mark to go back to the island of Cyprus and to visit those churches. Paul, meanwhile, is especially concerned about those Galatian churches where he's written his letter. So Paul and now Silas, new face, but a face who's got the Jerusalem letter he helped write to the churches saying, this is what the apostles and the the Holy Church in Jerusalem says you should do. It supports what Paul had said. They go, and this time they don't go by sea, they go by land so they can strengthen the churches on the way in Syria and Cilicia. So they go by land, they go to Derbe. From Derbe, they go to Lystra. In Lystra, something else happens. They pick up a young man. 
Now, I love this part of the story. Anybody know who the young man is? Timothy. So they pick up Timothy in Lystra. And Timothy has a Jewish mother who has a Jewish grandmother. But Timothy's dad is a Greek. Timothy was uncircumcised. Now think about this for a minute. Paul, who wrote Galatians. Paul, who's wrestling with this issue with the churches. Paul's now got Timothy, a young boy, who it looks like there's good reason to think Paul converted the first time through. Because Paul calls him his son in the faith. So there's a good reason to think that. Good scholars seem to think that. So here's this young boy who wants to go with Paul and Silas on their mission effort, which is going to the synagogues first and then to the Gentiles. So they want to go with them to the mission effort. But in the process of going, Paul's sitting there saying, gee, Timothy's not circumcised. Yet that's the very thing I've been saying should never have to be done to a Christian just to... it. it, it it's not what it's about. So you know what Paul does? Circumcises Timothy. Why? Oh, it sends some scholars around the loop and back. In fact, some scholars say, uh, Luke clearly was made up by someone a hundred years later who didn't read Galatians. Or they would have known Paul never would have done that. Wrong. Wrong. In Jewish thought, your lineage is passed on through your mother. If your mother is Jewish, you're Jewish. Lineage is not passed on through the father, and it's a handy thing. Because the Jews recognize that you don't always know definitively who the father is. But there's no doubt about who the mom is. Could never be any doubt. So lineage is measured through the moms. So Timothy is Jewish, whether his dad, the Greek, thinks so or not. At least that would certainly be the perception of all of the Jewish congregations. So now if Paul were to take Timothy to those Jewish congregations, all of the Jews would have been turned off immediately. Paul is quick to say to the Jews, I'm a Jew. To the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile in order that all might be reached. It was a no-brainer to circumcise Timothy. It clarifies, any, it stops problems and issues before they happen so that the focus can be simply on the gospel. So with that, Timothy is circumcised, and now it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy who head on. I don't like that map. It's getting too crowded. Are we on? We don't, yeah, there we go. I changed maps, see? Boom. How's that? Map change. Okay, so this has got a little finer print. Hopefully you can still follow it. Here's where we are. From Lystra, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they start heading towards Mycenae. Here's the passage out of Acts. It reads as follows. When they had come up to Mycenae, which is the region where my road ends on this map, when they'd come up to my, think outside of Constant or Istanbul, I guess is what we call it now. 
when they'd come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, which is up near the Black Sea. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And now we get to Acts 16, 8 through 12. And all of you who took 7th grade English, how many of you took 7th grade English? Oh, about half of you. Um, I want you to be astute to the pronoun shift that happens in Troas. All right? You've just gotten your clue. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What's the pronoun shift? Uh Uh-huh. There's our English teacher. That's our pronoun shift. It went from third person, they, 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 to second person, plural, we. Is that no? First person, plural. I didn't take seventh grade. I didn't know my end up seventh grade English. First person, plural. We, we, we. Luke has just joined the party. In fact, this is just the priceless nature of the narrative. It's so cool how this works. Just look at this next snippet of a verse. I think Luke's just wanting to underscore the fact that he's made the pronoun shift. So... Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Now, why do I say he just put that in there? Because he's been covering big clumps and clumps. They went through Syria, strengthening the churches, and Cilicia. They wanted to go to Mycenae. They came to Troas. And now, all of a sudden, it's Pinpoint precision. It says, they went to Samothrace. Okay? That's exactly one day's sailing voyage. So that's exactly where they would have gone from Troas. Then he says, and the following day to Neapolis. One day's sailing voyage. So he went from this shotgun, huge overture, to precision in a diary. Hey, this day... One day sail voyage to Samothrace. Next day, one day voyage to Neapolis. From there, we went on to Philippi. Philippi is a major colony. You can see the ruins of Philippi today. While they're in Philippi, some amazing things happen. First of all, they find Lydia, this wealthy woman, who's down by the stream. And they go down to the stream to talk to her. Now, if you'll recall a few lessons ago when I talked to you about synagogues, Jews would typically build their synagogues by streams because they needed the water for purification. The problem is, it took 10 circumcised men of age to constitute enough for there to be a synagogue. So if you didn't have 10, 
you could still have a meeting place where you might need water for purification and things like that, but it was never technically a synagogue. And that's what we have here in Philippi. There's no synagogue for them to go to. So instead, they find the Jews down by the ceremonial washing place, the stream where they can wash clothes and everything else. There's a rich lady named Lydia. They proclaim the word. She converts. She brings Paul and his crew, Silas, Timothy, Luke, back to her house and starts bringing in everybody for the conversation about the Lord. There are lots of people being converted, but the Jews aren't very happy about it. And so if we follow this story, and we won't read all of it because we don't have time, but Luke 16, 13, we've got time for a little bit. On the Sabbath day, outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, no synagogue, but a meeting place, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Didn't have ten men. One from the city of Thyatira, or one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. That's wealthy. Who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. Now, the narrative continues. As Paul and the others are walking through the city, there is a girl who has a spirit of divination. She is, is uh, uh, um, what's it called when this, possessed, thank you. Sorry, I lost it. She is possessed. And she has brought her owners much gain by being able to tell the future to some degree. And she's pestering Paul everywhere he goes. Pester, 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 pester. So finally, Paul just turns around in a moment of frustration and orders the demon to flee her. And she's exorcised from this demon. Now her owners, the slave girl's owners, who'd been turning lots of coin off of her, she was making them, as Kevin would say, lots of do-re-mi. She was making lots of money. See that they're not going to be making that money anymore. This guy just ripped them off. He took the demon out. He took away her gift, her talent. So they raise a ruckus. Here's what happens. When her owners saw that their hope, Greek word hope, doesn't mean, oh, like a lottery ticket. It means it's el peace. It means a, a confident expectation. When her owners saw their confident expectation of their next day's paycheck was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they brought them to the magistrates, they said, hey, these guys are Jews. They're disturbing our city. This tells us Luke probably was not a Jew. Timothy's got a Greek father. In the Greeks' minds, he's not a Jew. Paul and Silas, they're the two Jews. They advocate customs not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. 
Now, the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them. They gave orders to beat them with rods. When they'd inflicted many blows, they threw them into prison. They ordered the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Zulon in the Greek. These are these wooden, it's a torture device. It's not just stocks. It was a wooden rod. Here, let's go back to the PowerPoint for a moment. Here's a picture of the ruins of the prison at the time of Paul. It was a deep, dark dungeon type place built into a hillside. These are what the stocks might have looked like that they put his legs into, but they spread the legs far apart to make it extremely uncomfortable. It was a torture device as it went into the Middle Ages. It was a torture device for the Romans as well. So they, they, they get... Now, in the, Paul and Silas, they're just singing hymns. About midnight, there's an earthquake. Not only does the gate open to the jail, but the stocks are released. Luke does not say Paul and Silas put the stocks back on them. <laughs> but they also did not flee. If they had fled, the life of the jailer would have been forfeit. The jailer realizes there's an earthquake. He goes running back to the jail and he's, and, and he's yelling and he's trying. It's dark. The light switch doesn't work. He's got to use a lantern. They hadn't invented the light switch yet. And so he's trying to figure out what's it. And Paul says, hey, don't panic. We didn't run out even though we could have. We're right here. We're just singing to the Lord, having a little worship service. Jailer pulls him out and says, are you really still here? And he says, yeah. He says, well, that means I live. Um, Why? Well, we're singing to the Lord. And evidently, Paul had already been talking to that jailer about salvation because the jailer's response is, what do I need to do to be saved? And he takes Paul and Silas back and the jailer and his whole household are saved. The magistrates want Paul out of the city when they realize Paul's a Roman citizen because they did illegal things. You're not supposed to beat a Roman citizen. Silas is also a Roman citizen. Paul says, no, we're not leaving. We're not leaving because you ordered us to be beaten. And we're Roman citizens. And now you're in trouble. And they're kind of like, uh. And if you want to know how that uh ends, you've got to come back next week because we're out of time. So here are your points for home. There we go. Paul said to the Galatians, You are severed from Christ. Think about that word. Paul's very clever in his writing. I mean, he's dealing with a circumcision issue. You are severed from Christ. Don't worry about the circumcision. Worry about a complete anatomy change. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Did you know that's the only time in the entire Bible that the phrase fallen from grace is used? The concept in different places. But that's the only time that phrase is used. And the phrase fallen from grace is not referencing somebody who has turned from the Lord to a lifestyle and a life of of sin and frolic. But the only time that phrase is used, it's referencing people who have accepted the Lord and then turned it into a merit badge they're earning. A matter of pride, 
a matter of arrogance, a matter of haughtiness. And yes, those are people who may think by the law and by circumcision they're gaining something, but they have been entirely severed from Christ because why do you need Jesus if you're good enough to get there on your own? If you're good enough to follow the law, you've fallen from grace because grace says you're not good enough. Now that doesn't mean that how we live is not important. It's extremely important. It's the reason Jesus died. is because sin is not something that God or anyone should just go, ha, that's just sin. Boys will be boys and girls will be girls. Men will be men and women will be women. That's just the way of them. No. It's a very serious issue. But the gospel-centered issue says, I stand upon the salvation of Jesus Christ, which came from the love of God and the love of Christ, and it has so infected who I am that out of love and faith, it changes the way I behave. Lord, may I live a gospel-centered life. That's what I want. For me, that's one of my take-homes. Next take-home, whoops. They seized, they dragged, they attacked, they tore the garments off them, they beat them, they threw them into the prison, into the inner prison, they fastened their feet in stocks. And Paul and Silas are in jail singing praise to the Lord. Be honest. How many of us would be in the prison saying, okay, we wanted to go to Mycia. There was this guy who said, come over here to Macedon in a vision. You sent us over for this? We could have been beaten in Derby. We didn't have to come here for this. What kind of a God sends his people purposefully into some God-forsaken Philippi Macedonian town where there aren't even enough Jewish men to make a decent synagogue so that we're seized, dragged, attacked, stripped, beat, thrown into, not, not placed gently into prison, thrown in, tortured. And they're singing their praises to the Lord. As he establishes not only an incredible church in that outpost, but one in Philippi to whom Paul will later write when Paul's in prison in Rome. With the memory, oh, that church in Philippi, my prison church. And he'll write to him how much joy he has in his heart, even in his Roman imprisonment, thinking about Philippi and the church there. I want to sing God's praises in the face of whatever the worst is that this world throws at me. And then while in that jail, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. It's buried in the middle of a hill. It's dark. It's dank. There've got to be rats. There've got to be roaches. There've got to be all kinds of bugs. They're there. You got your feet in the stocks. It's not like you can walk around. 
in the midst of the darkest, dankest, worst place that people could be placed in that town. While praising God, the Lord enters in and he pierces the darkness. I don't know where you are in your life, but you have no darkness and I have no darkness that God cannot pierce. And for that reason, in faith, I'm singing my praises now, knowing that it may be a while before he pierces the darkness, but I worship a God who's going to come. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray your blessings on everybody who hears this message that in whatever corner of of the world they are and whatever the world is throwing at them and whatever persecution there is, that you will put a song of praise in their heart and that they will know that their deliverer is coming and will not pass them by, but will stop in ministry and purpose as you bring all this entire world to fruition in your plan. We love you in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.